0: please open up your copy of God's Word to Luke chapter 10 as we carry on in this glorious gospel, the exposition of Luke. This morning we find ourselves in what is probably the most well-known of all the parables, the parable of the Good Samaritan. It's probably the most well-known, even in the midst of our country, that is growing in biblical illiteracy. But down here in the Bible Belt, you know, you hear something about the Good Samaritan. You know a thing or two about that, right? But sadly, even though the message is clear and simple, it's probably one of the most misunderstood and distorted of all the parables. And you see, the problem is knowing something about the story without knowing the one who gives the story. That's the problem. So we must humble ourselves today and come under the mighty hand of God's Word and receive yet again the glorious truth of the gospel, the kingdom of righteousness, and be humbled in our hearts and receive Jesus. We have to be confronted yet again with the radical message of what it means to be a a follower of Jesus, a disciple of Christ. This parable confronts our self-righteousness and it challenges us to go beyond religious formality, to truly receive Christ alone and then out of that to be a people of mercy and love. So let's hear God's word together, Luke chapter 10, verses 25 to 37, the word of the Lord. And behold, a lawyer stood up and put him to the test, saying, Teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? Jesus said to him, What is written in the law? How do you read it? And he answered him, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your strength, and with all your mind, and your neighbor as yourself. And Jesus said to him, You've answered correctly. Do this, and you will live. But he, desiring to justify himself, said to Jesus, And who is my neighbor? Jesus replied, the one who showed him mercy. And Jesus said to him, You go and do likewise. The word of the Lord. May he write it upon our hearts and souls forever and ever. Well, that brings us to our first main point this morning. A good question is asked from an evil heart. A good question is asked from an evil heart. That's what we see in verse 25. Behold, a lawyer stood up, put him to the test, saying, Teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? This question is meant to belittle Jesus. That's what's going on here. This man is not a secular lawyer like in our day. He's a religious lawyer. He is a theologian. He knows the truth of God's Word, and he's putting Jesus to the test. You see, the word here in the Greek for to put to test is actually the same word for to tempt. This man is tempting or luring Jesus into doing or saying evil. He's trying to belittle him. He's trying to push him down and to puff himself up. And isn't this what the unbelieving world does? to Christians and to the testimony of Christ. They try to marginalize. They try to trip us up. They try to embarrass us. The world seeks to mock Jesus and to mock his followers. And that's what this man with an evil heart is attempting to do. But the question is a good one. It's actually one of the greatest questions that we could possibly ask. And it often gets overlooked And the hustle and bustle of this world because we live in a sea of questions all the time. Questions bubbling up all around us. Some big ones, some small ones. Each and every moment of every day. Where shall I go? What shall I do? Great questions like, what should be my vocation? Who should I marry? But this is the greatest question. What must I do to take possession of eternal life? Why is this the greatest question that we need to ask? Well, it's because we have been created to be doers. That's what human beings are, created in the image of God. We're doers, and that's why we see doing all around us. Building and laboring and doing but you see, we were created in the image of God to be about doing His will and His work, to do His law, to do His righteousness. That's what He's called us to do and to be. That's what He's commanded of us. And yet in Adam, we're fallen and sinful. And instead of laboring for the wages of righteousness leading to eternal life, because of Adam and his fall, his sin, we're plunged into darkness and doing Sinfully and selfishly, Adam was called to be a doer of the covenant of works, the covenant of life. But instead, in his fall, he became a doer of sin and evil, which brings forth the wages of sin, which is death. And in that moment, when Adam disobeyed, when he rebelled the clear testimony and command of Almighty God, the promise was fulfilled and his spirit died. And the body follows the spirit. And so after a season, of course, Adam died physically too. You see, this is the same way for us. We're dead in our spirits because of sin. And our bodies follow along in the footsteps and eventually succumb to death. Death's all around us. We can't escape it. We live out our lives under the shadow of death. So this question, how then shall I inherit eternal life, is of course the most important question. God is holy and righteous. He's the creator and the judge and we must deal with him. So what must we do to escape death and experience life? So even though the question comes from an evil heart Jesus in love he uses this as an opportunity to address the man to call him to the reality of the situation we see it in verse 26 what's written in the law how do you read it isn't this amazing here is the eternal word of God in the flesh Jesus the incarnate one and he points the man to the bible The word given, the law and the prophets. How do you read it? What do you think? What does it say? Isn't it interesting how Jesus was continually in a running battle with the religious leaders, the Pharisees, throughout the Gospels? They're always arguing with Jesus about what? The Bible. What it says, what it means, how to interpret it, how to apply it. And they accuse Jesus all the time of being a heretic, of being a liar. Jesus is the living word. He declared to the Pharisees in John chapter 5, You search the scriptures because you think that in them you have eternal life. And it's they that bear witness about me. Yet you refuse to come to me that you may have life. So the word of God in the flesh, filled with a heart of love, he points the man with a hard heart, with an evil heart, to the Bible. Truth. What's written in the law, how do you read it? You see, Jesus is not just the the great living word, but he's also the great heart surgeon. So he's going to cut this man and show him the truth that his dead heart might become alive. Well, that brings us to our second main point this morning. A good answer is given from ungodly motives. A good answer is given from ungodly motives. You see, the lawyer has Bible on the brain, but he doesn't have Bible in the heart. He's a professional. He's a theologian. And he gives forth an answer that's not just a good answer. It's a great answer. It's awesome. He's not just parroting off of of a... some chart or some study guide and answer. No, he's actually synthetically thought about the Word of God and the answer to this question because he weaves together the truth of Deuteronomy 6 and Leviticus 19. It's a full, awesome answer. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength, with all your mind, and love your neighbor as you love yourself. He's showing forth the reality that he knows the truth. He's been taught the truth. Again, he's a professional theologian. He shows forth the reality of the the two tables of the law of God, which we've read today. One through four, the vertical reality of our obligations, our duties, our responsibilities, and obedience to God himself. And then commands five through six, the horizontal table of the law. How then shall we live in this world with one another? So here's the man who asks the greatest question, who already knows the answer, but attacks Jesus. And we see the horrible reality of so many who have the truth of the Lord without a heart for the Lord. So Jesus brings the hammer. He brings forth the the holy lightsaber to again confront this man to, to cut him to the heart. So how can we inherit eternal life? That's the question. The man gives the answer and Jesus says, okay, great, go do it. Do it and live. Do it and you will live. I mean, can you imagine having this conversation with Jesus? Just to be in his presence must have been, on one hand, off-putting because he's holy And in another way, wonderful because he's so loving, so compassionate. But here is Jesus, the Son of God, having this discussion with this man with an evil heart. And if we're being honest with ourselves, if we were to have this same discussion with Jesus, we would have to react like Peter when when he came to the realization that here's the Messiah and he fell at Jesus' feet and he said, Just get away from me. I'm a sinner. Or Isaiah and Isaiah 6, where John tells us in John chapter 12 that Isaiah saw Jesus' glory. And what was his response? Woe is me, I'm undone. But amazingly enough, the lawyer doubles down. That's how hard, that's how evil his heart is. You see what he says? He attempts to puff himself up and tear down Jesus again. Verse 29, but he desiring to justify himself said to Jesus, and who is my neighbor? This is amazing to me. Who is it that he leaves out of this question? God. Mr. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. He leaves God out of the question. And you see, it's because this man was his own God. His greatest idol was his pride, his standing, his intellectual prowess. And so he leaves out any mention of the Lord and just seeks to belittle Jesus and to puff himself up, to trip up Jesus, and who is my neighbor? But mercifully, Jesus gives the parable of the good Samaritan, and he confronts this lawyer with the truth. To bring him to his end that he might turn away from his pride and his sin and turn to the Christ. So that brings us to our third main point. A good neighbor is displayed in head, heart, and hand. You know, the people in this story, they manifest their character. Who they really are when it comes down to it. You see, every human being is a theologian. And every human being is showing forth through their actions what they really believe about God and about life. That's what's happening here. They manifest their actual theology, not a theoretical one, in their actions. So here's the scene. We've read it. It's simple. There's a man. He's beaten. He's robbed. He's stripped. He's left half dead. He's knocked out. He's bloody. It's a horrible sight. Here is this man created in the image of God, bloody, naked, dying on the road. You can't avoid it. He's right there. And who else is there? Well, along comes a priest and then a Levite. These next two characters in this parable. And, you know, these guys would have been buddies with the lawyer testing Jesus. They're part of that religious class. But they have God's word in their mind, but not in their heart. So what's their response? Rejection. They turn a blind eye to the man and his suffering. They absolutely fail to fulfill their responsibilities as neighbors according to the word of Almighty God. The priest and the Levite, I mean, they're the God squad. If they're not going to do it, who's going to do it? so-called holy men. The priest is all about holy worship. The Levite's all about holy service. They know the right thing. They know what they should do, but their actions represent a self-centered religiosity that's worthless. It's horrifying. Well, of course, then finally, the last hope, rounding the corner. Who is it? You know, just being there in the scene, I imagine the minute that Jesus said, and a Samaritan, you could just hear the hisses and the hoots from the Jewish crowd. Ha! Ah, a Samaritan? I mean, they're the hated ones. They're the outcasts. The... They can't be a Jewish hero. They're despised. We have to remember, of course, who the Samaritans were they were the poor, the outcasts? they were the ones left behind after Israel had so sinned against the covenant of God that they received the final cursing of the covenant, which was to be ripped out of the promised land, to be taken into exile as slaves to pagans. And the Babylonians left behind just a few of the poorest of the poor to tend the fields. And over a couple of hundred years, these people, they intermarried with the pagan nations around them. And that became the Samaritans. And for the Jews, they were traitors and they were racially polluted. They hated them. They weren't pure. So we must recognize who Jesus highlights as the unexpected hero here, the despised Samaritan But we also must recognize the reality that we desperately need good neighbors in this crazy, upside-down, broken, evil, violent world, don't we? It's absolutely necessary to have good neighbors, godly neighbors, true neighbors. This man had a great need for that. He's dying in the road. A good neighbor is truly required was true for him it's true for us we're surrounded by people eight billion people on the planet so much need physical need spiritual need emotional need financial need but isn't it interesting how we so easily justify not helping those who are in need I'm sad to say that I have said this before when I've been presented with need after need and I'm frustrated that's what taxes are for. Right? You ever said that? You know, the safety net? The government's supposed to do it, man. Well, I get it, you know. Never in the history of our country have we been taxed more and watched greater waste. But we're talking about an immediate need of a dying man. He doesn't have time for the wheels of bureaucracy to get going. No, no. We also justify not showing mercy when we say things like this. Well, they did it to themselves. He deserved it, right? I mean, we could say that about this guy. This is a dangerous road. What was he thinking? Traveling down this road all by himself. He was asking for it. But you see, the point is one of mercy immediately. But the problem is good neighbors are rare they're rare. We know that. We see that. Good neighbors are rare. Godly neighbors. I mean, this world has shrunk. Not just because we can get on a jet and go somewhere like that, but with digital and web and cameras everywhere and 24-hour news, the world has shrunk. We see the reality that good neighbors are rare. Because right now, you can Google and search for Somebody who is violently assaulted and left for dead and, and watch people walk by them and just ignore them. This makes the news. You don't have to look very far to see the reality of this. Good neighbors are rare. And sadly, Jesus confronts us with how rare good neighbors are even within the covenant community. The man who's wounded is implicitly a Jew. And two Jews walk right by. How rare, even within the covenant community, are true neighbors. Well, what else is this good neighbor like? Now, this is hard, but it's right there in the middle of it all. A good neighbor is not a racist. A good neighbor is not biased. He's not bigoted. He doesn't show partiality. And deep down, each and every one of us, we know what racism really is. But you know, because of our crazy, broken country and our political and media spin doctors that have weaponized this word so that we make war against one another and we live in upheaval, the word racism doesn't even mean anything anymore. Because you see, if everything's racism, then nothing's racism. It's true. Math is racist. What? I just learned this weekend that country music is racist. Well, we better cancel that. Well, come on, let's get real. Every heart has the evil root of racism and bias and showing sinful partiality based upon all manner of things. And that is evil. But you see, brothers and sisters, a good neighbor with a head and a heart and a hand, living faith, doesn't decide whether or not to, to help someone in need based upon their color, their race, their gender. Or dare I say, even their, their pronoun designation. Right? Or their political affiliation. No. Human being created in the image of God in need. That's all that matters, right? Well, here we are. We see the next characteristic of what a true neighbor is. He takes risks. Didn't this man take risks, this good Samaritan? I mean, this road's dangerous to stop and try to help and serve. I mean, he put himself at risk for his own life because this is how the bandits do it, right? Attack one, rob one, leave them there, and they become bait for the next person. He risked his life, his own life. Isn't it risky to get involved in the lives of hurting people? Well, the next characteristic that we see of a true neighbor is he responds to need. A good neighbor responds. He responds. That's what he did. In compassion, I love verse 33. It says, when he saw him, he had compassion. You know, the old King James translates it, the the bowels of compassion. He felt it. He saw the situation. He knew intellectually the reality of it. But then he had empathy. He put himself there. He felt the man's needs. And he acted. He responded. He goes in. He pours on wine and and oil to, to cleanse and to soothe the wounds. And he binds him up. He puts him on his own animal. And he takes him to a place of safety. He responds. In action, that's what love is. It's knowing and it's feeling and it's doing. That's what love is. Well, we also see this final characteristic of a true neighbor, a a good neighbor. He ran sacrificially, didn't he? I mean, he responds to the basic immediate needs, but then he goes way beyond. And it costs him. You see that? I mean, he spends the night with this guy. He helps him in all these ways. And then the next day, he takes money to give to the innkeeper. And let's just put this in modern context here. I mean, think about it. It says it's two denarii. Historically, we've thought that that's been, you know, a day's wage, right? A denarii is one day's wage. But you think about inflation and health care and all that stuff. He says, whatever you might spend to help this man on his food, his clothing, his medicine, his needs, his lodging, I'll underwrite it all. Who knows how much this was? Well, there it is. Jesus confronts us with what it means to be a good neighbor. Hits us. And that brings us to our final thought this morning. We see a glorious Savior standing before us, full of grace and mercy. We have to remember the premise for this conversation, the beginning, right? What must I do to inherit eternal life? Well, I don't know about you, but confronted with the Word of God, the perfect and pure law of God, To love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. And to love your neighbor as you love yourself. The grandeur of this. The beauty of it spoken. And then the power of it. Whereby Jesus puts flesh on it. Not just in principle, the truth, but in practice. This is what it looks like this would bring me to my end I have to ask myself the question what hope do any of us have what hope do I have the man asked the Lord Jesus what must I do to inherit eternal life he points him to the law he points him to the practice of the law in the doing of righteousness and as we consider that in and of ourselves our conscience we should be crushed because none of us have pure and perfect motives and we don't do the law of God and to drive home this dialogue, Jesus asked the question, which of the three was a neighbor? Man has to confess, the one who showed him mercy. And Jesus said, you go and you do likewise. Jesus has told him to do twice. You see, he gives this man no way out. Really. No way out except for the way of faith and surrender and receiving the Christ. Because really and truly he stands before Jesus and he's already confessed the truth. His own words condemning. He's standing before the living reality of the word of God in the flesh. The one who has done all things perfectly. And Jesus says, go and do. But you see, we can't do that. Neither could this man. No son of Adam, no daughter of Adam can perfectly obey God's word and thought, word, and deed. We stand condemned. And we know this deep down, humanity does, and that's why we've been in the business of rebelling against the Lord in specific ways that deal with religion. Coming up with ways that we can assuage our our conscience, you know? We, we take God's mountain of his holy law, Mount Sinai, that's written upon every human heart. And we try to bring it down on the level, something that we can manage. So we play around with religion. And really the history of religion is do, do, do. But it's dead, dead, dead. Dead. We have to get this through our heads and into our hearts, brothers and sisters, that Christianity is not a religion. It's a faith and a confession and a relationship with God through the gift of Jesus Christ, His Son, and the power of the Holy Spirit. So we hallelujah in grace. But you see, this is the problem. Every human being must deal with the Lord, and He doesn't grade on a curve. And so you either stand before the Lord on the day of days holding the hand of Jesus, the law keeper, the holy one. And hear the words, well done, good and faithful servant, a gift. Or you do business with God on your own. You see what Jesus is doing is bringing forth the power of the law, fundamentally the first use of it to expose and to crush and to condemn. And we stand before it as though a mirror and it exposes our hearts and our souls and our lives. There's nowhere to run. There's nowhere to hide. The Lord knows. That's what the law does. And then by the gift of faith and the Spirit, we see Jesus, the glorious Savior, standing there, offering himself. See, both... Men are on a road, right? This lawyer's on the highway to hell rejecting God, and Jesus Christ is on the highway to hell to save sinners. We're all on a highway, brothers and sisters. Who are we in this story? Are we the broken, beaten one receiving mercy? Are we the judgmental lawyer puffed up, denying God? Are we, are, are we those religious men that are living out of fake piety? Who are we? Well, think of our great need. Think of the only one who can save us. This is the message and the story and the glory of the Bible. This is what John saw in his revelation. In John chapter 5, the, the, the wonder, the splendor, the drama of that. I'm sorry, in, in Revelation chapter 5. John is given a vision on the Lord's day. He's caught up in the Spirit, and he sees all of heaven and earth. He sees the entire angelic host, and he sees the entire sons and daughters of Adam. And then he hears the call that goes out. Who can break the seven seals of judgment and save God's people? And he's looking, looking. Who is it? Who's worthy? And no one steps forward out of the sons of men are out of the angelic host no one's worthy and he begins to weep and all of a sudden one appears the lion of judah the worthy one the fulfiller of the law but what does he look like a lamb who was slain the one who took the sins of his people upon himself The one who risked it all, who saw the need, who ran in the way of obedience, who was the true neighbor. What a friend of sinners this Savior is. Jesus. Well, we must never lose sight of the foundational truth that salvation is by God's grace alone. It's a gift, the gift of Christ alone, our Savior. To the gift of faith alone to hold fast to him. How beautiful Jesus is. So as we look at this parable today and we think about how we might apply it to our lives as we live out of a wellspring of God's grace being transformed by the gospel, what can we do? How can we apply this? I think there are some practical ways. Just quickly, you know, one thing we must do is we must expand our definition of Neighbor. It's really simple. It really just comes down to proximity. Right now, all you guys are my neighbor. Perfectly pure right here. We're here together. If I see a need, I must meet it. I must love you. I must serve you. And you know, we must engage in practical acts of mercy and kindness. That's the other way we can apply this. You know, we live in a rich part of the world with lots of tangible, material blessings. We might not see... Needs like this one on the road. But you know what we see each and every day all around us, the great need of our community, is the need for friendship. I love what the book of church order says. What is the deacon's primary calling and service to the local body? To be friend to the friendless. You know, we're all deacons in the Lord Jesus. He's the great deacon. We're all servants, what could be more loving and more practical in living out the gospel power and thanksgiving than to be a friend to someone who needs it? Somebody lonely, lost, afraid, isolated, new. You know, you young people, you might not have money, you might not have a car, you might say, I don't have things to give, but you can give your friendship here in this church, in your school. What a gift. What a neighbor. The other thing we can do is we can be close. You know, just proximity. We can be near one another, especially in need, especially when there's turmoil, when there's brokenness, when there's pain and sickness. And we can't fix it. But just being present is a great gift of friendship And mercy, isn't it? To be there with a comforting word, a timely prayer, a helping hand, an available ear. What a blessing. Well, you know, our final application really is the most important. Let's be neighbors and see the need of all those around us. And the greatest need that we see all around us is the need For the gospel to be shared. Isn't it? To share Christ with the lost. So as a church, let's pray that we would look for those opportunities with joy. That we might be risky. That we might be sacrificial. That we might lean in and share Christ. Share the joy of your testimony, your Salvation, the truth of God and his love for us. As we do that, our great Savior, our true neighbor, our great friend, he'll be pleased. Let's pray. Oh Lord, we thank you and praise you that your holy word is true and that it comes forth in power. We also thank you, O Lord Almighty, that the word of life has come forth, Christ our Savior, so that we're not left just cut and convicted and crushed and broken by the law and its demands, but we have the comfort of our Savior. We pray that you would help us to know all that we need to know to live in this world with great wisdom. We need your Holy Spirit to empower us, and we thank you for this day of rest and worship.